everyone. You're listening to The Katie Helper Show, and I'm your host, Katie Helper. If you like the show, please leave us a five-star review on iTunes. And as always, remind you that this show could not happen without the support of our listeners. To support the show, visit patreon.com slash the Katie Helper Show, where for just $1 a month, you can help make the show happen. And for $5 a month, you'll qualify for great bonus content, including an alternative podcast feed and rarely seen clips that aired on our live shows. Hello, and we are live and welcome to the Katie Helper Show. So incredibly excited and honored to have joining us Steve Van Donziger, human rights lawyer, environmental lawyer. If you're just tuning in and you haven't seen him on the show before, as we're going to get into, Stephen was basically punished for daring to sue, help sue Chevron. Uh, we're going to get into the, the details of that case, but he's joining us from his apartment where he is forced to be because he's under house arrest. And he was just sentenced last Friday to six months in a federal prison, like a real prison. Stephen, welcome to the show. And also stand by, we're going to have joining us Marianne Williamson and Chris Hedges, who are both two advocates for Stephen Donziger. So welcome, Stephen. Thanks. Good to be here. Of course. Really appreciative of your time. You're coming on. I'm sure you're incredibly exhausted. We're going to be talking to Chris Hedges and Marianne Williamson about the significance of your case, also about the kind of malfeasance of the judges involved in your case and the law firms. But I thought maybe you could just share with people a little summary, uh, because one of the unfortunate things about this is that because you've been railroaded for representing 30,000 indigenous people and farmers in Ecuador, that story has almost been eclipsed, not by any fault of your own, but we can't, and, and they haven't been paid what they're owed. So can you just set up like how you even got involved in this whole story? Sure. I mean, the, the story has gone on for 28 years, and I'll try to explain it in about two minutes. I was a young lawyer just out of law school in the early 90s. I was invited to go to Ecuador to investigate what we were told was a terrible pollution problem caused by Texaco, American oil company in the Amazon, in an area where five indigenous groups lived. Went down there for a week with some scientists and lawyers, saw an, really an apocalyptic nightmare Olympic-sized lakes of oil on the floor of the jungle, hundreds of open-air unlined toxic waste pits that Texaco had abandoned, and they had pipes coming out of the sides, and they were draining their cancer-causing contents into rivers and streams that the indigenous groups were relying on for their drinking water and their bathing and their fishing, with the upshot being this was, you know, by far according to experts, the worst oil-related contamination ever. The worst part was it was not an accident. It was not a spill. It was part of a deliberate design by a greedy oil company to save 2 or $3 per barrel of oil produced. Um, the upshot is thousands of people have been afflicted with oil-related diseases. Many have died of cancer. Um, the indigenous groups have been decimated. We filed a lawsuit in the United States. Chevron wanted it in Ecuador. They accepted, Chevron had bought Texaco. They accepted jurisdiction in Ecuador. Over an eight-year period, we litigated the case. Chevron um, vigorously defended itself, had an army of lawyers down there. We ended up winning the case, uh, a judgment that ultimately was affirmed by the Supreme Court of Ecuador in the amount of about $10 billion, which frankly is a very modest amount compared to the magnitude of the damage. Um, And then Chevron turned its guns on me. Rather than pay the judgment, they sued me back here in New York, which is where we had originally filed the lawsuit where they didn't want the case to be held. And over the last 10 years, they've tried to demonize me, criminalize me. I've never had a jury. And ultimately, I've been locked up in my home now for two years and two months with an ankle bracelet um, after I was held in contempt of court for refusing to turn over my computer and cell phone to Chevron that is, turn over all my privileged information. Um, I've mostly been attacked by two U.S. trial judges, Lou Kaplan and Loretta Preska. Both are right-wing, pro-corporate judges. Um, Preska's a leader of the Federalist Society. Chevron funds it. Um, Kaplan took his contempt charge against me, uh, you know, for which I'm locked up, uh, to the U.S. attorney who turned down the prosecution. Kaplan then appointed a private law firm, did not disclose the fact that this law firm um, had Chevron as a client. And the law firm, the name of of which is Seward and Kissel, 
um, prosecuted me directly in the name of the government. I was essentially prosecuted by Chevron and locked up by Chevron. They took control of the machinery of the public prosecutorial apparatus here in New York. And, and here I am still fighting it again with no jury and, you know, trying to get out of this situation. The judge who had locked me up for almost two years prior to trial as a supposed risk of flight on a misdemeanor charge. That's the most petty crime in the federal system. And I assert my innocence, by the way, but even if I was guilty, no one, no lawyer gets locked up in jail, even for a day on a misdemeanor. And the same judge who had locked me up for almost two years prior to trial on this, this theory that I was some sort of risk of flight also conducted the trial, determined that I was guilty, and then just gave me the maximum sentence of six months in prison on top of my two plus years in house arrest, which I just think is blatantly illegal. And it's already really been determined to be such by the United Nations Working Group on Arbitrary Detention. So here I am. It's been tough, but I'm optimistic we'll get through this. We have a great appeal. And, you know, that's that's fundamentally the story. And as of now, what, where are you now in the case? What's the next step for you? My sentencing was last Friday. Um, the judge let me out, out, quote unquote, into house arrest rather than go directly to prison because she gave me a chance to appeal to the appellate court her decision to deny me bail pending appeal. So right now there's essentially two appeals. You know, there's the big appeal of her conviction, which will take one to two years. And then she denied me the ability to be out pending resolution of the appeal. I, I fully expect to be exonerated. But the trick that she's trying to employ right now, Judge Preska, is to force me to serve my entire sentence in prison before my appeal can be resolved, which essentially means if I win my appeal, I will have served the entire sentence anyway for a crime I did not commit. So it's very, um, I think, unethical, inappropriate, abusive on her part. Um, and we're appealing it now to the Second Circuit Court of Appeals here in New York. And I hope to get relief so I don't have to go to prison at all or at a minimum don't have to go to prison until the appellate court can review what we think was a completely unfair, unconstitutional trial. And what kind of prison will you be sent to? What is this prison? Unclear. I mean, she'll put me into the federal prison system, which is run by the Bureau of Prisons, and they designate you to a facility, there is a concern that my sentence is so short that they might not be able to designate me. I mean, you know, this is unusual. I'm the lowest security risk. Again, people in my position, even if guilty, generally don't get sentenced to prison for a misdemeanor, people with no criminal record like myself. So it's unclear where I would go, whether I'd go to one of the jails around New York, which are pretty tough facilities, or whether I would go to a, a low security federal prison somewhere nearby. I, I don't know yet. And I was listening to um, Judge Fresca, who, again, is with the Federalist Society, which is a right wing uh, legal organization, and they are funded by uh, Chevron. Chevron is one of their big, biggest donors. Uh, I was actually maybe I'm naive, but I was somewhat surprised that when she read her sentence, which, again, was the maximum sentence of six months, um, when she read her sentence, she said, Quote, it seems that only the proverbial two by four between the eyes will instill in him, you, any respect for the law. Uh, were you surprised by that kind of language? Uh, or is that just par for the course now with this person? Well, both. I'm surprised. I don't think that kind of kind of violent imagery has a place in a sentencing process, but it's also a reflection of the, you know, the, the way she's running the proceeding, the anger. Um, you know, I, I think, um, you know, they're attacking me because I was successful representing indigenous people holding a major American company accountable for massive pollution. And these are right-wing judges who try to protect the corporate power of the United States. Um, sorry, but I just don't think they operate within the framework of the rule of law. And I, I just don't believe, you know, I've always respected the law. I've spent almost 30 years on this case going to court. I've never missed a court appearance. I'm always filing um, legal motions and, and the like, uh, you know, and when I refused to turn my computer over, I didn't say I'm never going to turn it over. I appealed the order that I believed was unlawful. And while it was on appeal, Kaplan charged me criminally for criminal contempt for not complying with his order that I had appealed. 
You know, so that's what a lawyer does. And they're trying to criminalize human rights lawyering. And I think they're operating outside the framework of the rule of law to do so. I mean, I'm arbitrarily detained. No lawyer's ever been detained even a day on this charge at home. And I've been, again, over two years. The longest sentence imposed on a lawyer ever convicted of my level of offense is 90 days of home confinement. So, you know, this is obvious politically motivated retaliation from two activist judges um, in response to our successful advocacy in holding Chevron accountable for the world's worst oil pollution done deliberately in Ecuador that has literally killed thousands of people. Um, that's what this is. I am a man who respects the rule of law. I always have. I always will as a lawyer. Um, I believe the judges, and I know this might sound odd to people, they are judges, I get it, but I believe this whole case has been you know, handled in a way that is illegal, and I have been validated with that view by none other than five esteemed international jurists from the United Nations Working Group on Arbitrary Detention, which, by the way, comes out of the Human Rights Council of the United Nations, of which the United States is or has been a member. So the United States is obligated. They, they ordered my release and they ordered me to be paid compensation by the U.S. government. So in my view, the United States is obligated to do just that. Obviously, Judge Preska blew it off, um, mocked it, but that's not the final word. I mean, ultimately, the Department of Justice, Merrick Garland, the Biden administration needs to step in and make sure this case um, gets back on track and, and is begun. To, it, has, it has to be handled in conformity with the law, with the international law. Um, the United Nations Declaration on Human Rights, the International Covenant on Civil and Political Rights, which, by the way, are international laws that are binding on the United States of America that our country has signed. So, you know, that's an amazing validation of my position by, you know, outside jurists. Um, you know, and on top of that, many other prominent lawyers and others have, have, been, have been sharply critical of Judge Kaplan and Judge Preska for the way they've mistreated me. I know one of your lawyers represented um, Daniel Ellsberg and Lenny Bruce, and he said he's never seen anything like this. That's Marty Garbus, who's a legendary civil rights lawyer who's, you know, represents me along with Ron Kuby. Marty's awesome. Um, and he has he's practiced law for five decades. He represented Daniel Ellsberg, as you said, Nelson Mandela, Lenny Bruce, um, Cesar Chavez, many important people in you know world history who've been attacked for political reasons and you know he's able to sort of understand that the context of what's happening to me is similar to the context of what has happened to them and I don't mean to put myself in the same class of people as those individuals but in terms of the process that the state uses to try to neutralize someone who challenges entrenched interests you know in Ellsberg case, the, the war machine that was doing the Vietnam War, Mandela challenged apartheid in South Africa. Cesar Chavez challenged the entire structure of, you know, farm worker labor in the United States. So, and I believe I'm challenging the entire paradigm of, of big oil and what it thinks it can do in so-called developing nations to really run roughshod over vulnerable communities. You know, this is the first judgment of this magnitude ever issued by a court of law against a major oil polluter on behalf of indigenous peoples. They want to destroy not only this case, but the idea of this case. They destroy the case by locking me up. They destroy the idea of the case by destroying the lawyer who led it. And that's what they're trying to do. And I'm determined not to let them get away with it. Well, we actually have two other people who are also determined not to let them get away with it. They are allies of yours, advocates of yours. They've written about you or spoken about you on their podcast. I'm going to bring them in. Marianne Williamson and Chris Hedges. Hello. Thank you so much for joining us. Sure. Thank you for having us. And as people probably know, Marianne Williamson is a former presidential candidate. She is the host of the Transform podcast and Substack, and a major champion of Stevens. Chris Hedges is an award-winning American journalist, was a correspondent for 15 years for the New York Times, the author of several books, including one about teaching in a prison, which we will talk about later, 
America the Farewell Tour, more than I can remember. Marianne Williamson is also an award-winning author. So very excited to have you guys. And I want to start by asking you how each of you got involved in this case, started writing about it or speaking about it, why it was important to you to speak out about it. It was Ralph Nader, I I believe, was the one who alerted me to it, if I remember correctly, a while ago when it began. And then I wrote a long piece, uh, about 4,000 word piece, was about a year ago, and I've had Steve on uh, my show on RT America and RT International on Contact several times, including after uh, this latest uh, court uh, ruling. Uh, he'll he'll be on Saturday, so it's an extremely important uh, case on many levels. Uh, but as I was telling Steve, one of the things that disturbs me the most is how there's no even pretense of abiding by the rule of law. Uh, it, it, in many ways, I think it's by design. It reminds me very much of the constant uh, legal irregularities that characterize the case against Julian Assange. And I, I think in some ways they want us to see that it's that biased and that blatant because they're attempting to send a message, not only to Steve, but anyone like Steve who wants to stand up uh, against corporate power or the national security state, or as in the case of Julian. So uh, that's that's one of the things I find most frightening, that there there isn't, uh, that the, there isn't even the facade of legality and the lists of firsts. Uh, I mean, Steve can run through them, uh, which is also, by the way, the same with Julian. So I sat through uh, Preska's uh, nutcase, and I sat through, judge, yeah. Uh, yeah, I sat through uh, her uh, the trial she presided over with Jeremy Hammond, Hammond who leaked. Uh, uh, emails of a private security firm, Stratfor, one of which I used, was fundamental to my own court case against Obama, uh, against Section 1021 of the National Defense Authorization Act, where uh, private security officials and the FBI were attempting to link dissident groups to al-Qaeda any, or any kind of jihadist group so they could charge them with terrorism laws. I mean, it's just a very chilling discussion. Uh, so, uh, I, uh, I mean, personally, it's horrific, uh, t- what they're doing to Steve and his family, um, just as it's horrific what they're doing to Julian and his family. Uh, but, uh, it, this is going to impact all of us. What about you, Marianne? I don't remember. I don't remember who first told me about it. I remember, reading and just couldn't even believe what I was reading. Uh, Stephen and I have discussed this. I, we don't remember, who, was there a mutual friend or something? I don't know. Uh, we do have a mutual friend in Joey, Zoe Tryon, but you didn't have to know anything. And you certainly didn't have to know Stephen personally to read about the case and believe all the things that Chris just said and that Chris has written about so eloquently. Um, this is an attack on all of us. This is meant to be a freeze, a chilling effect on any of us who care about these things and who care to be part of a pushback against the corporate capitalist overreach that threatens our democracy today. So the more I got into it, the more engaged I was. And I think that more and more people are seeing that this is a bellwether case. Um, Chris was just talking about Assange and Jeremy Hammond. That I think people are beginning to understand. Uh, we have to stop just playing whack-a-mole. Like if we just fix it with this person or fix it. This is a, a larger picture here that has to do with this corporate dominance uh, that so many of us are rising up now. Uh, I think when it comes to cases like Stevens, I think to some extent, to a large extent, we've all been a little bit, you know, you guys really shouldn't act like that for long enough. Um, it's time to to draw lines in the sand uh, that we have not drawn before. And that's what I believe we're trying to do. And that many, many people are trying to do now in the case of Stephen Donziger. When you say you guys shouldn't act like that, are you talking about the powers that be or rabble rousers like Stephen? Yeah, whether it has to do with the military industrial complex, whether it has to do with big pharma, whether it has to do with big oil. You guys really stop, okay? Or we're going to elect this person or that person. And we're beginning to see it didn't matter if we elected the Republican or we elected the Democrat. People's eyes are opening to the uh, fact, especially with this, with the taking over of of the judiciary. We've known about the... uh, uh, the corporate control of Congress. Now, this has been going on. 
But the fact that it is so egregious at this point, the dominance within the uh, judiciary to the point that they actually can over, uh, they can take over a U.S. courtroom. I, I think that so many people's eyes are opening and, and we're re- realizing that this is now a takeover of our democracy. It is so much bigger than just Stephen Donziger. And we must take a stand for Stephen Donziger uh, as a way of taking stand for our democracy and for our own freedoms. Because once again, as I've said, and has, as Chris has said, if they can do it to Stephen, they could do it to any of us. I just want to p- pick up that, you know, this is, it's, it's not just here in this case. There's been a complete deterioration of the judicial system, the court system. Uh, already uh, millions of poor Americans, uh, 94% are coerced into accepting plea deals. I use the word coerce uh, quite intentionally. Uh, the court system would crash if they got under their constitutional right a jury trial. Uh, and uh, they're railroaded uh, to prison. Uh, this, uh, you know, fits the kind of torture. Remember the two years, uh, over two years now that they've had Stephen under house arrest, uh, and he's been unable to make a living, uh, frozen his bank account, but a lien on his apartment. Uh, This is also a form of psychological pressure. We see it in a more pronounced sense with Julian, but this is also in intentional. Uh, you, you have the, the creation of black sites, places that are outside U.S. law, to, you know, in the eyes of the state. So that's Guantanamo, that's CIA black sites where people are disappeared. Uh, uh, you have uh, in, in, the, in the widespread use of SAMs, where they're known as special administrative measures, uh, and this uh, prevents indicted people charged under terrorism laws from even seeing uh, the evidence or lack of evidence by which they're charged and communicating any kind of really communication outside uh, of their uh, usually solitary confinement where they're locked up 23 hours a day. Uh, And uh, um, the, the deterioration, this is just one more example of how the court system has been seized. um, And we have the figures, I mean, under Trump, 200 judges, 23% of all federal judgeships, 15, 53 to the appellate courts, those are the courts right below the Supreme Court. Uh, None of these people are qualified, including Presco, who comes out of the Federalist Society. Uh, And I referenced it in my story, gave this bizarre ruling where public schools uh, had to open their uh, space to evangelical uh, churches. I don't know where how she managed to legally twist that one. Um, and we now the Supreme Court has dominated six Federalist Society uh, judges. And Biden, the, this is bipartisan. I mean, it's come from the Democrats and and the Republicans. Two of one of the biggest champions of both Clarence Thomas and the late uh, Anton Scalia, uh, who uh, was one of the uh, original uh, engines behind the Federalist Society was Joe Biden. Yeah, Major Clarence Thomas. Major, I mean, played a large role in his confirmation. Yeah, and Scalia. Oh, I didn't know that. He was a Scalia enabler also. Yes, he was. Wow. It's hard to imagine Scalia not being extremely old. I thought he was just like born that that age <laughs> onto the Supreme Court. You know, it's it's interesting because I find the Assange stuff enraging and infuriating, but not as surprising. And I guess I'm naive, but I'm constantly surprised and resurprised by this this treatment you've gotten, Stephen. Because, I mean, this shouldn't matter. But you have your there's no I don't know what the left wing version of Trump. What is it? Trump dementia syndrome? Not Trump dementia syndrome. What is it? Trump derangement syndrome? Like. Assange is they they consider him responsible for 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 Trump's victory. I mean, there are all these narratives that are absurd because that also has nothing to do with the charges. But Stephen, you're a not that this should matter, but you are a Harvard Law graduate and you were representing indigenous people in Ecuador. Obviously, Assange was doing extremely important work, but there's something more kosher about what you did. And yet I, I would think that, like you were saying, Chris, I would think that they would at least like have some like gesture towards some decorum or some process or some norms, but they really don't. Are you surprised by that? Are you just used to it? Were you did you not expect that much of a railroading? Can I just say something before Steve? Oh, yeah. It's not really kosher because you have to remember that 
environmental rights or human rights campaigners outside the United States are being murdered right and left. They just can't murder him. If he was in Ecuador, he'd probably be dead. Yes. And I should say when I, yeah, I don't mean to sanitize the treatment of environmental activists. I mean, from, you know, Rigoberta Menchu to, um, like if you just open, well, no one covers it here, but obviously that is a kind of just a part of life in lots of countries. Um, but so when I say kosher, I just mean it's not quite as uh, going out of one's way to destroy the world order. It is, but it isn't. Uh, again, it's more that I just I just kind of assume that people would would pretend to pay attention to rule of law with you. Stephen, no offense. I don't mean to downplay your. Well, I, mean, I, I think what you're, you are. what you're alluding to is something that's very real in our society, which is I come out of a world of privilege. I went to Harvard Law School. Um, one would, I guess, in the normal course. I mean, obviously, our criminal justice system has so many problems, police racism and all sorts of things. I think what's happening to me and I don't mean to, you know, act like I'm the one with the biggest problem. I'm not. But I do think what's happening to me is a new type of thing that people really need to pay attention to. I think it's driven by the fossil fuel industry. It's about capturing part of our federal judiciary, playing off of years and years of right wing funding to control the judiciary. Chris alluded to with Trump's judicial appointments. But it's not just Trump. It's it's happened for many years. And it's to the point now where you can't even walk. It's hard to walk into any federal court in this country and see a judge who comes out of the human rights world or the defense world, the civil rights world or the criminal defense world. I mean, almost all the judges come out of the corporate world or come out of the national security state world, former prosecutors. Um, So we're already sort of marching upstream. But, you know, I want to remind people this case was not in those courts. This case was in Ecuadorian courts where Chevron wanted the trial to be held, which conducted themselves um, well. Their decision has been affirmed by 28 different appellate judges in Ecuador and Canada, by the way, including the Supreme Court of Canada, which validated the Ecuador judgment for enforcement purposes. The only judge in the world who found that there's a problem with our judgment that we won, that again has been validated by six appellate courts, is this one U.S. trial judge who had such arrogance that he actually took it upon himself from his trial court in Manhattan to issue a ruling without a jury that purported to overturn the entire decision of the Supreme Court of another sovereign nation, that is the courts of Ecuador. And to understand the absurdity of this, I just ask people to think about what they would think if the opposite had occurred. Suppose an Ecuadorian trial judge issued a ruling overturning a decision of the United States, purporting to overturn a decision of the United States Supreme Court. Think about it. He would be, he or she would be laughed at. I mean, laughed out of the room. But that's exactly what Judge Kaplan did here. And it's shocking to me the extent to which the legal press and the big media reports on that as if it's some like legitimate thing. Like he decided the Ecuador case that had been in trial for eight years in Ecuador with 220,000 pages of record evidence, 64,000 chemical sampling results, 105 expert reports, none of which he would look at. But he's still deciding the case out of his Manhattan trial court without a jury, wouldn't let me testify. Um, And I think behaved in a way that was farcical. As a matter of fact, John Kecker, I mean, that's my opinion. John Kecker, one of the great child lawyers in American history, prosecuted Oliver North, Supreme Court clerk, runs a beautiful boutique litigation firm in San Francisco. He represented me for a few months and he said, I got to get out of here. Like, this is a Dickensian farce, what's going on in Judge Kaplan's courtroom. So, you know, there's a lot of what I would say environmental racism at play and the way people think about the courts of Ecuador that actually did a great job. And they give deference instead to a U.S. trial judge who I think, you know, operated outside the framework of the rule of law here in the United States as a way to destroy the rights of indigenous peoples to a remedy to even get access to justice for harms. I mean, terrible harms caused them when Texaco was down there that continued to this day because the damage was never cleaned up and those same pipes in those same pits are still spewing the same cancer-causing substances into the water 
water that they're drinking, and people are dying all over the place. And all Kaplan can do is attack the lawyer who helped the indigenous peoples achieve a successful result. I mean, it's just extraordinary. Um, I No, I did not anticipate. Look, I anticipated fight back. You know, I mean, oil companies don't just write big checks after you win a case. They're going to fight. They're going to appeal. But I did not anticipate the level of what I think is just blatant judicial corruption taking place in U.S. courts in my particular case. And I want to just clarify something. I don't believe U.S. courts are generally corrupt, okay? I believe most judges, even conservative judges, even Federalist Society judges, at least try to operate within what they see as the framework of the rule of law. You know, I'm not saying I agree with their decisions, and I do think our courts are very kind of structured against human rights claims and civil rights claims because of their composition today. But what's happened with Judge Kaplan and Judge Prescott is an altogether different kind of animal, and I've never seen it before. It's totally abusive, and I think it is clearly intellectually dishonest. And it's basically two judges trying to use the power given them by our country, okay? These are, are presidential appointments confirmed by the Senate, okay? They have enormous power, and they are turning it on people, meaning me and the indigenous people of Ecuador, to destroy human rights claims and to weaponize this case to intimidate anyone who wants to do this incredibly important frontline work to hold major polluters accountable, which, by the way, is also critically important to save our planet. So I'm, I'm, I'm appalled at what they've done. No, I did not expect it. No, I refuse to give in to it. Um, and I will continue to call it out for as long as I can. Can I, can I just make another point? Uh, and that is the press. Kaplan, by the way, was appointed by Clinton. But right. the, the, the press has completely uh, uh, blacked out this story, including the New York Times. And that's because Chevron has used its advertising dollars. The New York Times runs its own publicity firm. Uh, it's uh, uh, called T-Brand Studio. Uh, they set that up to produce ads for their clients. And of course, who's their biggest client or one of them? It's Chevron. So the New York Times had a long, long magazine story that was up on Stephen, and then it disappears. It gets dropped. Uh, but we know from leaked internal memos that uh, the, the Chevron has quite effectively shut down, uh, certainly within the commercial press coverage of this case. Um, uh, it's uh, there's there's. Uh, there, there's a August 10th, 2010 internal memo. Uh, this I'm quoting, based on where this story is trending, we have launched a full offensive to kill it or redirect it. Uh, they shut down. There was in the, out of the Miami Bureau, I think it was at Fox. Uh, maybe Stephen can correct me. I can't remember. Uh, they, they've just shut down story after story. And that's also an important element. If I could just comment on that, when, when Chris says they, he means the Chevron lawyers and, and goon squad have earned constantly intimidate journalists when they try to write about this and they call Chevron for comment. They say, oh, you can't write this story. I mean, Stephen Donziger has been determined by Judge Kaplan to be a fraud. Why are you writing this story? Oh, you're being duped by Donziger. And if they persist in writing the story, I'm, I'm not talking about independent journalists like Chris or you, Katie. I'm talking about the big media. If they persist, they you know, their editors get a call and they go up the ladder. And if they need to, they'll call, you know, the publisher and, and, and the board members and all that. I mean, Robert Denham, for example, um, is a big hedge fund guy who serves simultaneously on the board of Chevron and The New York Times. You know, Ted Boutros is a prominent partner at the law firm Gibson, Dunn and Crutcher, which has literally made a billion dollars in fees over the last 10 years from Chevron to attack me and to destroy me. And he represents the New York Times. That is the same law firm Chevron uses to attack me and has put me in this situation of detention, also represents the New York Times. They're very conflicted. And it saddens me that they, you know, that they have so little backbone that they can't cover what's obviously a newsworthy story. I mean, you can dislike me and with the story. This is newsworthy. You know, I'm a Harvard law grad, classmate of Obama only lawyer in American history ever locked up on a misdemeanor sitting here in my apartment, a 20 minute walk from the New York times newsroom. And I've got reporters coming in from Europe, flying thousands of miles to interview me and they can't even walk up here and do a story. 
Yeah. And as you said, you don't have to like Steven Donziger. You don't even, you can, you can smear. I mean, I'm sure they'd smear you anyway, but it is unprecedented, right? I mean, like just the, the very nature of the case and how you have a judge because the federal prosecutor declined prosecuting you, then you have this judge handpicking a firm, then handpicking a judge. A private, a private law firm that had shit on as a client is prosecuting me. This is the first corporate prosecution in U.S. history, as far as I can tell. The, the Times doesn't take on corporate power. It doesn't. And this is why Cy Hirsch left the paper, writes about it in his memoir. He took on Gulf and Western, all mobbed up, Charlie Bluthorn, and the Times neutered it, and he quit. And he recognized then that uh, they will occasionally take on state power, <clears throat> although less and less, not corporate power. And that's why they, they and, uh, you know, internally, I'm not going to name names. Steve knows them. Uh, I know the reporters who are assigned to it. They're good careerists. That's why they're still there. That's why I'm not. And uh, they uh, they know how to dance to the tune that uh, the hierarchy of the paper and and those uh, corporate powers that the paper wants to placate uh, place. And uh, uh, and so I mean it's the moral smugness that kind of gets to me internally. But yeah, me too. Yeah. But uh, they're just not going to take on Chevron. Uh, it doesn't matter how blatant it is. Uh, and and uh, that's long been true at the New York Times. And MSNBC? Well, or, oh, sorry, Marianne, please. Well, it's more than neutrality at this point. It's more than being silent about these cases. It's actually carrying water by these corporations, uh, the way they demonize people. We're living at a point where the more they demonize someone, probably we should look more closely at that person because they might be the exact radical truth teller uh, that we should be uh, most paying attention to. This personal demonization and smearing of people is one of the main forms of character assassination. Like Chris was saying, if he was in Ecuador, he might be killed. There are very different ways that they make sure uh, to manipulate people's opinion uh, at this point. I also felt that it, it, it's worth noting the level of decline here that we're talking about when, when Chris was talking about taking over the judiciary. You know, Thurgood Marshall was a human rights lawyer. Can you imagine somebody being nominated for the Supreme Court today? He was talking about before about their coming out of corporate America. There was a time when somebody being a human rights lawyer would uh, uh, would be deemed an, an appropriate platform uh, for ascension onto the Supreme Court. Uh, they've also, you know, everyone here tonight has talked about not only the moral smugness and the false neutrality of the media, but also the laziness of the media. And we see that, of course, with Afghanistan. We see that with all of these things. It's like not only do you, you, you wonder if these people went into any ethics classes when they were in journalism school, but also were they told to do their own research? Really, you're just going to listen to what Chevron has to say about that? That's all you're going to do here is just take the word of what the, the person from Chevron has. And then the only last thing I'd say about that is, where's the loyalty? Particularly, I think the left really has something to look at here. Um, it's true on the right, but uh, we're not the right. And I think sometimes I feel that we talk and talk about the philosophy. We talk and talk about the, uh, the, the dynamics of what's going on. And then when we see real human beings... Like with Stephen, I'm happy now. I'm sure Stephen is very grateful now. We're at a point where people are starting to wake up. But you know what? It should not have taken so long. It should not have taken so long. Same thing with Assange. I mean, and although I myself was kind of late to get there, but I think all of us need to be more hip to what's happening now. And when we see these corporations taking off after individuals who are doing the work that we ourselves keep saying needs to be done, particularly when they are threatening the livelihoods and even the lives of people such as this, I hope we all uh, grow um, in our sense of courage and our sense of urgency that we must stand up for these people. That's what's happening with Stephen right now, uh, with you, Katie, with Crystal, with all of us who are out there talking about it. Chris's incredible article. I mean, Chris, your article uh, about this and about the corporate executioners, we have our handbook. To me, that article is like the handbook and everybody should be passing that article around. Everybody should be discussing it. Everybody should be calling Merrick Garland. A lot of us are hearing this now and all of us need to step it up, make those calls, put it on your platforms. And once again, call Merrick Garland and for that matter, make some noise for President Joe Biden. Actually, we're going to do that. So, oh, thank you, Quinta. 
Quinte Guifre, Guifre. Um, we had Marianne Williamson read and meetups in 1990s. Of course, Miracles is a self-study program in spiritual psychotherapy. It is a book that is based on universal spiritual themes. It is not a religion. <laughs> Thank you. Wow. Stephen, do you want... So last week I was on with two young climate change activists. I'm glad you weren't on with them, Chris, to tell them that they were... Well, what did you call it once on my show? The the child uh, childish mania of optimism about <laughs> climate change. Um, but uh, we called Joe Manchin. So I wanted to give you the chance, Stephen, if you wanted to, I can call or you can call. We have Merrick Garland. Maybe you could model the ask and then people can also from home do their phone calls. And Marianne, you can call. We also have a list of people because we know some members of the squad have spoken out, but now they need to act. We got a bunch of people on the list. So do you want to, would you, Stephen, do the honors and, and call, leave a message for, because their offices are closed, maybe leave a message for Merrick Garland telling him what you want? I, um, do you mind doing it? I, it's a little awkward for me because I'm like the defendant in the case that. Yeah, you're right. Is that, is that a violation? I'm trying to suggest what you could say to him. Yeah, tell me what to say and then I'll say it. Um, I, think I think what people need to say when they call him is um, Mr. Attorney General, I am calling on behalf of Steve Donziger and our country and the values of our country to ask that you not let a corporate private prosecution take place in the United States that clearly violates the rule of law. All you need to do is one simple thing, make a decision to take the case out of Chevron's hands and take it over directly yourself via the DOJ. And, you know, it, Review it if you want or dismiss the charges, as was the original decision by the DOJ. But you can't let a private prosecution take place. Take the case back. And also, that's number one. Number two is implement the United Nations Working Group decision calling for Stevens' release and the payment of compensation for his arbitrary illegal detention. Okay. Those are the two asks. All right. I mean, I don't know. There's, I'm on with some highly intelligent people Three of you, actually, Chris and Marianne and Katie. I mean, do you think that makes the most sense, those two asks? Yeah, I think the issue is getting getting it back into the regular courts because yeah. the via legal violations are so egregious uh, and Preska is so insane uh, that even given the tenor of the courts, you have a much better chance of, of, uh, of uh, having this overturned. But what we're going to ask him, I just want to have the bullet points so that people can from home do it also. So please take back the case, dismiss it. Should you not be here, uh, Stephen? Is this a violation of some kind of thing? No, I'm fine. All right. I just, I'm yeah. fine. You're not going to be uh, happy to watch the call. Yeah, okay. I don't want them to railroad you with some new charge of aiding and abetting or something. Aiding and abetting. Aiding and abetting of to the attorney general yeah yeah exactly yeah okay chris or marianne do you want to do it i can do it or i can let's see please take back the case dismiss it and follow also stop this this corporate unprecedented how's that that's good right unprecedented corporate prosecution that has been condemned by members of congress right senator 68 nobel laureates well, and the United Nations. And the United Nations. And Amnesty International. Greenpeace. International. I'll leave off Roger Waters because I'm not sure, although I'm a huge fan, not sure how much sway he has with Merrick Garland. <laughs> Amnesty International, Greenpeace, the UN, kind of big deal. And then reinstate, compensate. Well, turn it over to the Department of Justice. I mean, you know, they should be. And for five years, they. the reason this happened is because they didn't want to take the case. <laughs> they didn't think it was worth it. And that loophole should be closed so that this can never happen to another yeah, private citizen. that's right. Okay. Chris or Marianne, you want to take a shot at it? Go I ahead, think Marianne. you should, Katie. No. Oh, uh, yeah. Not me. Do it, but it's not going to be as serious as it should be. I'm going to, let's see, what am I going to call him out for? I always got to call him out, compare him to Trump. All right. Let me try it. You guys ready? So take back the case to Smith's stop. I'm pre- All right. I'm just going to go. I'm going to do it. You have reached the Department of Justice comment line. Although your opinion is valuable to us, we cannot return calls made to this number. If you would like to contact the Department of Justice, including the Attorney General, 
please log on to our website at www.justice.gov and select one of the options under the contact link. If you have a law enforcement issue, please contact your local police or the FBI in your area. If you would like to leave a comment regarding civil and constitutional rights, please press 1. Oh. For cybercrime, please press 2. For departmental investigations, please press 3. Immigration issues, please press 4. Sounds like 1 is the best option mm-hmm. so far. One. Go for it, Katie. Right. Otherwise, please press 9 to leave another comment. To hear these... Please leave your comment regarding civil and constitutional rights. Record your message at the tone. When you are finished, hang up or press pound for more options. Hello, my name is Katie Halper, and I'm calling to ask Mr. Garland to dismiss the case against Stephen Donziger. This is an unprecedented corporate prosecution that has been condemned by members of Congress, members of the Senate, 68 Nobel laureates, uh, Amnesty International, Greenpeace, and the United Nations. Please hand the case over to the Department of Justice. Take it back. Take back the case. This is a terrible railroading violation of uh, constitutional law, a violation of human rights. It's a dark stain on America. And it's something that, if happened under Trump, would be condemned by people such as yourself, I'm sure, because you are a man who respects rule of law, the Constitution, human rights, liberty, fairness. You don't believe in letting corporations take over the courts and loopholes that allow corporations to prosecute. Uh, Your own Justice Department declined it. Uh, The federal prosecutor's office declined going after Mr. Donziger. So please, for the sake of America and our relationship with our allies abroad and uh, as as the beacon of justice and liberty and equal rights for all, please take this case and free Steve and Donziger. Thanks so much. Okay. Call me back. Bye. (laughs) Call me back. Bravo, Katie. I was a little nervous. nervous. I thought I was going to, I I should have, I should have written something out. I forgot what to call him. I was like, Mr. Mr. Garland. Mr. Garland, that was pretty funny. But you did great, Katie. You did great. Didn't she do great, Stephen? Yeah, that was, that was really good. I thought that was great. Play up the American, you know, the jingoistic angle. I thought that would maybe land, wanted to throw up a little bit. We need to go chain ourselves to the, to the uh, exclusive, uh, High Tower, where uh, Prescott has her nine million dollar penthouse. Oh yeah, we're in Garrison. Uh, I don't know. It's nine million dollars. That's what wow. I heard. I was going to say that if enough people call that number, press one, which is feel free to leave a message about a constitutional violation. You know, I think the message will get through that there's some concern about this case. Yeah. So I, I think that's a number that people can call press one and just briefly say take Donziger's case back from the private Chevron prosecutor, review it according to DOJ standards. If you can, dismiss it. But at a minimum, we cannot have private prosecutions in America and also implement the United Nations Working Group decision, release Stephen, and pay him appropriate reparations. Those are the two points. People can also write letters to the editor in their local papers. You can write a letter to the editor in the New York Times. Why aren't you... uh, why aren't you covering this? So there are so many places where you can write and make your voice heard because it becomes a symphonic effect of just enough people. You know, that's how advertising works. People hear about it, then they hear about it again, and they hear about it again. And I feel more and more people are hearing about it. And now uh, it's a matter of just making sure, whether it's a newspaper, whether it's a radio station, um, and of course, Merrick Garland himself, comments line at the White House. Like Stephen said, if they hear enough uh, these things begin to have an effect. Okay, well, Marianne's yeah. right. When I worked at the New York Times, they actually had a quota. So if they got 10 letters, they I forget what the formula was. Mm-hmm. They uh, had a number that it represented a certain number of opinions. So actually a fairly small number of letters that were sent into the editor, uh, if there were enough of them, had a huge impact. So yeah, wow. it's, it's, it's certainly worth speaking out. Yeah. And what what should we say? So we're getting the bullet points down. And then what should we say to people like AOC, Jamal Bowman? What I would say to the members, the members of the Congress is simple. Um, You know, tell the Biden administration and tell Merrick Garland to do exactly what we just went through. 
like this is an outrage. We cannot have private prosecutions in America. Take the case over now and, and, and deal with it consistent with DOJ standards, meaning, you know, the prosecutor needs to be disinterested and neutral, not someone out of a Chevron law firm. And I, I promise you, the only reason I've been locked up for two years in my home is because Chevron's prosecuting me. There's no other explanation. You know, no other lawyer charged with my level of offense, which is considered the most minor in the federal system, ever has been held even one day in pretrial home confinement. And I was held almost two years prior to my trial, which wasn't really a trial because I never got a jury. You know, so if the DOJ had prosecuted me, that never would have happened. I mean, the charges wouldn't have been brought. So they need to take it over and assess it. And I think dismiss it, but at least take it over. That's what members of Congress, I think, need to do in terms of contacting the DOJ and Merrick Garland. You know, some of these members of Congress have written letters. By the way, quick, uh, really quickly, people, if you're at home calling, which I'm sure you are, record yourself and then you can send it to, I'll give you an email for the show. And then we can make a mashup of people making calls to their Congress members and to Garland, Biden and the likes. Sorry, Marianne, I cut you off. No, I just I think I was going to say just something about the fact that the more voices that are out there uh, that we're looking. I think so much has happened in this country because just not enough people were registering that it was happening. And, and the offenses became and the transgressions became more and more egregious. And we watched and and we didn't do anything. And at this point, it's a, a matter of speaking up. It's like when a woman is, you know, women are told if you're if you're mugged, just start screaming. We need to just start yelling about this. And uh, it becomes inconvenient to the system when we do. We also, yes, so keep yelling. We also need to have a slightly different, so we're not going to call out. We're going to kind of call in the members who have already written a letter on your behalf, Stephen. But then we got some people we got to call out, including Jerry Nadler, Shonda, big time, he represents you. He's supposed to represent you. He's your member of Congress. His son is involved in a firm that does business with Chevron, that represents Chevron. Yes. And he hasn't even acknowledged the petition that was delivered to his office with 14,000 signatures. 24,000. Yeah. 24,000. Yeah. I was starting low on that. Yeah. 24,000 signatures. That's shameful. And what about Kristen Gillibrand? I know The Intercept had a piece on that today. Can you just tell people so we're up to date on the conflicts of interest there? Yeah, yes. So, you know, so I have three three directly uh, direct representatives living here in Manhattan, Jerry Nadler, Senator Schumer, Senator Gillibrand. Um, the Intercept has done some great reporting in recent days with regard to Senator Gillibrand. She has accepted, if you can believe it, over $400,000 in campaign donations from the Gibson Dunn Law Firm, which is Chevron's law firm that's been targeting me for 10 years. So she's been totally silent. I believe, you know, showing no real courage in the face of her obvious dependence on Chevron-related money. And Schumer, for his part, has accepted over $1 million in donations from um, big law firms that represent big fossil fuel companies. So is Nadler, by the way. Nadler has taken, you know, by the way, Nadler says, I don't take money from the fossil fuel industry. Might be true, but he takes a lot of money from the law firms that enrich themselves by representing the interests of the fossil fuel industry. So, you know, I find it shocking that, I, you know, that none other than the United Nations five esteemed international jurists have found this to be a violation of international law. This is a human rights violation that I'm living out through my body, through my detention, right here on US soil in Manhattan. And my three elected representatives have said absolutely nothing. No one's even picked up the phone. No one's come to visit. No one's even done the most mild kind of investigation. Just total silence. And Nadler's also the chair of judiciary, right? Nadler is the chair of the judiciary. One of your listeners that said, what do I say if I call Nadler's office? And I think just like when you heard uh, Katie 
expressing herself, just you expressing yourself. I think when Chris was talking about the number of calls for a congressman to get that translates into something that would actually be mentioned to the congressman or the senator, the right wing tends to be more active in these kinds of ways. And sometimes people think, well, what would my one constituent call matter? It does. If a congressman or a senator gets a certain number of constituent calls, they hear about it and it does matter. And you got enough facts certainly here, or if you go to freedonziger.com, Chris has written his article, I've written things, so many of us are out there talking about it now. And just say you're offended by this. As an American, you won't stand for it. You don't want to see a corporation able to prosecute an individual uh, private citizen in the United States. You want this uh, case taken back into the U.S. justice system. And you want you, I want you, my congressperson, or you, my senator, to do something about it. And I'm watching. All right. Well, we're going to uh, I know that I I don't want to keep you, Stephen, or either of you. I mean, I'd love to keep all of you to keep talking. I have lots more to ask about, but I think people have Can to- I just say something before I, I have to go. But I sure. wanted to first thank you, Katie, for having this platform for all of us tonight. I want to thank Chris and Marianne for their courage and their solidarity. It means so much to me. Your the work that both of you do in, on this issue and, of course, the rest of the issues you deal with in your lives is impressive and it makes the world a better place. And I feel fortified to have you um, on the side of me and the Ecuadorian people. And the final thing, I, and that goes for you too, Katie, but you're the host. I guess you don't get the same treatment. Yeah, yeah. And the, the, final, the, the final thing I want to say is um, if you want to help, we do have a website. It's called, as Marianne just mentioned, freedonziger.com, freedonziger, one word. Um, there's articles on the site. There's some, a video of me explaining some things. And you can also make a donation to our legal defense fund. It does take resources to deal with this. So if you can join our campaign, give a little bit or give what you can, it would really be appreciated. But in any event, sign up for the campaign. Um, it's at freedonziger.com. That's where you can go to sort of help me and help the Ecuadorians continue this battle. I hope you do feel fortified, Stephen, by how many of us are standing with you and will continue to stand with you uh, throughout this. You're not alone. Thank you, Marianne. Well, I, I, that means so much, not just to me, but to my wife, Laura, my son, Matthew, and the people of Ecuador. You know, I, this is crazy. I keep going on. I got to get out of here. But, you know, no, people would not even know about this case had they not done this to me. It's crazy. I mean, this was a very low profile case until they locked me up and people started to pay attention. And I'm just going with the gods here. You know, I mean, this has happened and we are, you know, people are paying attention. And I think ultimately we're going to get through this. And most importantly, I'm going to get my freedom back and the people of Ecuador are going to get their land and their cultures back because there will be a cleanup because Chevron will have to pay. And that's ultimately the hope that I have, the, you know, the optimism I maintain as we sort of look to where the next stage is, is to get me out of this situation and to get Chevron to pay the judgment that it owes to the people of Ecuador that it poisoned over a 25 year period when it was operating down in the Amazon. Yeah. Any final words? And feel free, Chris or Marianne, feel free to do a call to any of these people. I definitely will. And I, I do want to put in one final plug for Chris's article, because not that Steve, not that Chris Hedges needs me to plug his work, but I think this one particular article on the corporate executioner, not only about Stephen, but the context uh, mm-hmm. that he draws around it is it, it's, it's so this moment and it's such an eloquent and, and brilliant description of the moment that we're in and by extension, what we need to do about it. So reading that article is, I think, um, very empowering. Thank you very much. Thanks, Marianne. You're welcome. I, I, I did that. It was an incredible piece of work. And, and Chris, your journalism over decades, which I've always followed and admired after meeting you when I was a young journalist myself in Nicaragua in the 80s. Um, you've added so much to our society, our democracy, you know, creating an informed citizenry. So, I mean, I just, I, I have tremendous admiration for you, but I have such admiration for all of y'all. So anyway, thank you. All your minions, Chris. (laughs) (laughs) All right, that's enough. Okay, dinner. Somebody has a wine. (laughs) (laughs) We'll all be at Stephen's house in a few minutes. That's right. All right. (laughs) 
we have these shows just to compliment each other, right? You, you compliment me, I compliment no, you. No, I, I, these are these are the, you know, the what's left of our anemic democracy is withering away by the day. And I quoted in that column Victor Klemperer because, uh, and he talked about how fascism changed the words in the same way that our constitutional rights are revoked by judicial fiat. So, you know, we still supposedly pay fealty to the Constitution and the rule of law, the right to privacy, all of which has been taken from us. And Klemperer notes that as that process was happening, very, very few people noticed. And of course, I'm here with three people who uh, do notice and are speaking out. Uh, and, And unfortunately, by the time they finish that process, the the ability to speak out itself is taken away from you. So um, this fight is important um, for many reasons, not least of which is because of Steve's tremendous integrity and courage. Uh, But like the fight for Julian, uh, like the fight for the students that I teach in the prisons, I've taught in the New Jersey prison system through Rutgers University for a decade. Um, This it's all one fight. It's one fight to uh, roll back this assault against the open society. Um, And uh, unfortunately, these powerful forces uh, now, whether it's in academia, whether it's in the press, I mean, I just think it's criminal that the New York Times has not covered this. uh, And I call the executive editor, Dean McKay, he and I were hired together, um, as Steve knows, um, I didn't get very far, but I just said, how can you not write about this? Um, what do you say? Oh, well, um, can't reveal. He, I asked him about T brand and Chevron being a major, perhaps the largest client. And he said, I didn't even know Chevron was a client of T brand, which may be true. I don't think Dean will lie yeah, to me. That's but. what they say. I've heard that one. Right. I didn't even know they were advertisers. Yeah. So it, it's, uh, I mean, since I come out of the world of journalism, that, that uh, I mean, this is just another example of the huge black hole uh, of uh, uh, the, even the purportedly liberal sites, MSNBC, and uh, they won't take on the national security state or corporate power. Indeed, uh, you, they can't get the representatives of the national security state and the intelligence state on the air, you know, fast enough. Brennan and Clapper, and uh, I mean, they had Bolton up there, you know. Uh, talking about Afghanistan. And then the the whole coverage of Afghanistan was the entire history of Afghanistan was reduced to one week, uh, not 20 years, because they don't want to deal with all It breaks my heart the way we're just moved on. Yeah. You moved on. So uh, I think that this is is an extremely important fight and that, uh, you know, those who are complacent or passive at this particular moment in history will live to regret it. What what is to be done? I mean, to quote our good friend, what can be done, though? Well, I saw I cover the revolutions in Eastern Europe. I know what has to be done. Five hundred thousand people shutting down Alexander Plotz every day. Uh, so the eradication of the Stasi state, five hundred thousand people in Venceslas Square in Prague, uh, probably the same number booing Ceausescu. And he and his wife have to flee to the roof and fly away in a helicopter. I mean, that's what has to be done. And uh, because the, the normal mechanisms, whether it's the press, whether it's the money-saturated politics, I mean, look at the infrastructure plan. It's just being completely eviscerated by K Street. And, and, and these things have broad popular support that cross party lines. So it doesn't matter what we want. Uh, so I, I think that we have to develop that kind of nonviolent, sustained civil disobedience that I saw in Eastern Europe um, because they'll, they're scared. I was spent a lot of time in Zuccotti Park. I also come from a family that has a lot of people on Wall Street, hasn't had people on Wall Street for many years. And so, so I know from my cousins and everything else, they were terrified. I mean, now there was nothing to be terrified in Zuccotti Park, um, uh, but they wouldn't even eat out. They were like bringing their bag lunches and their little private security firms, which was fused with the NYPD. They were getting like hourly updates 
well, they're marching around Zuccotti Park with a puppet of a squid or whatever it is. They, they were really scared because they know how corrupt the system is. Uh, and the rent-a-cops, you forget that in the lobbies of these buildings, off-duty cops are hired for, I think, about $37 an hour. These cops know how corrupt. And there was a lot of uh, back and forth uh, between the blue uniform police who were assigned to Zuccotti and the protesters, as well as my big campaign was to treat them with respect, that terrifies the state. And most of the egregious acts of physical abuse, like the kettling of the women at the beginning, that was done by the white shirts. These are the officers. So um, internally, there's a recognition as to how rotten the state is, but we need to create that external pressure uh, to begin to neutralize these forces, because once there are divisions within systems of power, uh, then it creates paralysis. Uh, so I've long been a proponent of, of sustain. I was, I was at Standing Rock and, of course, very involved in Occupy. And something will erupt again, something that I can't predict. Uh, I thought the young men and women who ran Occupy were amazing. I learned a lot from them. Um, and just... Uh, you know, when you talk about, I think Marianne was talking about the way people are demonized. Let's not uh, leave tonight without uh, recognizing that the person who has fought corporate power longer, more effectively, and with more integrity than anyone in the country, Ralph Nader, uh, was actually named in the 1971 Lewis Powell memo as someone they had to destroy. And that's what they did. And they also have destroyed Julian. I mean, we don't, we don't even discuss anymore the tsunami of war crimes that he exposed and fraud and everything else. We just talk about his psychological condition and his two babies, and which is what they want. Right. Uh, so they also carried out that kind of character assassination uh, against Julian, and and they've carried out a character assassination against Steve. Um, that's they, that's what they do. And the and the media organs. I mean, the Wall Street Journal wrote, and I was telling Steve they also don't feel alone. They also wrote an editorial denouncing me. Um, but they wrote this ridiculous editorial denouncing him. Uh, and uh, that's what, you know, big money and big power can do. Uh, but we have power, too. Uh, and it's time we use it. <laughs> People may may not know this, but just this week, they jailed Ziggy Thorgerson, who is the hacker who lied about Assange's involvement. I mean, again, these stories, they should be. It's infuriating. It's so infuriating that no one's covering them. Yeah. In fact, I should have done a double whammy talk to Garland, talk to Merrick about Assange, told him to also uh, drop the charges there. But we, we one thing at a time, you know, and last week there's that Michael Isakoff piece at Yahoo News about how the CIA talked about killing and kidnapping Assange. And it's just doesn't penetrate the news the, at all. Well, this has been great. I'll stay on. I, I forgot to ask what time you're out for. I know you do have to go, Stephen. Not that you have anywhere to go. Sorry. <laughs> but he has a lot to do. He has a wife. He has a son. He has a life. Well, I love you guys. I, I'm going to tell you. Too, oh, thanks, Steven. Chris, Mary, and Kate. I really appreciate Thank it. You. Yeah, Thank it's great you. to see you, Steve. Yeah. Okay, okay, take care. Bye bye. All right. Thanks, Katie, for doing this. Thank you. Thank you, Katie. You, love you. Thank you. Thank yeah, you, you too, Chris. On. Thank yeah. you. Okay. Bye bye. Right. Good night. Bye. That was the biggest Jewish goodbye I've done in a while. Thanks again for listening to The Katie Helper Show. If you like the show, please join the Patreon at patreon.com slash The Katie Helper Show. Again, that's patreon.com slash The Katie Helper Show. Please leave us a five-star review on iTunes. And as always, we remind you that this show could not happen without the support of our listeners. Our show is produced by me, Katie Helper, Nick Palm. Brad Bloom is our audio engineer and an associate producer on the show. Our researcher is Joshua Bregman. And our theme song is by the band Cordova. See you next time.